Hey, welcome to Monday's podcast. I'm, I'm going to wreck the ending here. Um, Greta Thunberg, fire starter. Uh, <laughs> she might be from The Omen. We're not really sure. That's where the show ends. Um, strangely, it, it's, not where we, it's not where we begin. Uh, we begin in a very nice place, very nice place, with the difference between the dream and the nightmare of America. Do we even know the truth? Great podcast for you today. Here it is. believe in an American dream or we believe in the American nightmare. Now, the American dream has changed. It was changed by FDR, quite frankly. It was changed um, it was changed to everybody has a house, everybody has a car, everybody has enough. That's not what the American dream was. The American dream was to come here and to start something and be your own person. Be able to have control over your own life. Now, the other American dream, while it was officially kind of changed and mutated by the FDR administration, that that American dream that he was touting was prevalent in America for a long time. Started in 1619. Started in Jamestown. We started bringing slaves in. The British did. People came here for money and power. But that's not the American dream. That always turns into the American nightmare. The world has always had dreams and nightmares. Man makes both of them. But man has made nightmare after nightmare after nightmare. And usually, in the modern world, it was done in the name of common good over common sense. It was done in the name of power and control instead of control on power. That's the fundamental difference between the dream and the nightmare. And we have to decide which one we want to be a part of. Because they're both very real. The American dream is as real as the American nightmare. But nobody's being taught this anymore. Of all, of all places, George Washington University celebrated transgiving last week. University of Florida students last week marked it by calling it a celebration of genocide. Well, I guess it is if you believe that America was founded in 1619 but it wasn't even the american dream wasn't part of anything to do with jamestown that was the american nightmare but that's being taught as the new york times calls it 1619 now 1619 is being taught even in your children's schools and i'm not talking about high school they are now starting to teach that america began in 1619. We've had enough nightmares. We've had genocide. We've, we've had 
people like FDR who recrafted the dream. Remember, recrafted it from this idea that you can make it yourself to an all-powerful government whose birth was 1619 in Jamestown, which allowed him, the progressive hero, to put Japanese in internment camps. It allowed Jackson to round up the Indians and slaughter them. There's a new book out that I've been reading. It's about Sidney Gottlieb. I don't know if you... I don't know if that name triggers anything in you. Perhaps it should. Here's a guy who retired at 55 years old. By all accounts, people who knew him in his retirement, everybody thought he was a great guy. He would go, he went and he decided that he wanted to finally do what he and his wife had always wanted to do, and that is go down to the port and just get on the next ship wherever it was going, no agenda, and just serve people. So he went to Asia, and he was serving as a doctor there. He, he went to India. He started living in leper colonies. He was one that would embrace the lepers and help them. By all accounts, this guy was great. Until the United States Senate called him back because they wanted to know what the CIA's chief medical scientist had done in the previous 25 years. He was experimenting on children as young as six. He was the guy who used LSD and heroin as mind control drugs. He developed the torture techniques that we're all ashamed of. He is America's Jekyll and Hyde. How did that happen? How does a guy who was serving people how does he go do the things that he did? By the way, he was never brought to trial. He was never really fully exposed because he burned all of the documents. Everything the CIA had on him, he destroyed before he left. He knew. He also committed suicide before any more could be dug up about him. He knew. He knew, but he had justified it in the name of this great country in the service of the greater good and he used science in the same way that Winston Churchill spoke of Churchill said that we are in a time where the world is made darker by the dark lights of perverted science Boy, does that sound like it could be said today. We are living in the world that is made darker by the dark lights of perverted science. We have to choose common sense over the common good, power and control or power or control over power. We must choose the bright lights of truth over the dark lights of perverted science. If we don't, those who follow the path set in 1619, one of slavery, plunder, and death, 
will repeat itself, especially if that's all they know. And it will be done in the name of superiority or superior race, superior thought, even. It doesn't make a difference. Are you saying that everything is the same? No. No, there is superior thought. There is. There are superior cultures. I think our culture is superior over a cannibalistic culture. But the idea has to be based on common sense over common good. Because it's common sense that we, I think, parrot, and yet we don't really ever stop to search its meaning. See, the difference between 1619 and 1620, where the pilgrims landed, is it was about the individual, and it wasn't about stuff. It was about being able to control your own life and have your own ideas, to, to worship God in your own way. But you had to live with your neighbors. See, in Jamestown, they didn't have Thanksgiving. But in Plymouth, they did. And they had it with the Native Americans. They had the longest-running peace treaty with the Native Americans in our history. The Pilgrims did. The Pilgrims did. And by the way, they didn't break it. It was the Native American that broke it. But see, out of the Pilgrims came the idea that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. You know the words. And they all sound like blah, 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 blah to most people. Because they think people didn't mean it. And you know what? A lot of people didn't. A lot of people still don't. A lot of people on Capitol Hill today will tell you all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. They'll usually drop the creator part and they don't mean equal. They mean equal. Yes, we're all equal, but some are more equal than others. But it is only the search for the true meaning of that that stops oppression. Stops one man on top oppressing the other, rich over poor, powerful over the weak. It was a revolutionary idea in 1620. It's a revolutionary idea in 1776. It's still a revolutionary idea all around the world. This is why you saw over the weekend people gathering in Hong Kong flying American flags. Because it's still a revolutionary idea. It's strange to me that I can watch a group of people literally on the other side of the earth. And I can watch them in real time on technology that came from this country. Came from individuals having the power to create and keep their creation. We can watch on those devices, people across the world holding American flags. It seems as though they know who we are as more and more Americans forget, or perhaps we've fallen asleep. 
or in the best case scenario, perhaps those who know the difference have just fallen silent, thinking that it's okay to stay out of the fray, thinking that this too shall pass. I don't want to get involved. It's time to find ourselves again. It's time to stand up. It's time to give thanksgiving. It's time to learn from the nightmares while rekindling the dream. You know, I don't think that there is a I don't think that there is a a better understanding a better understanding of the difference between the dream and the nightmare than some of our songs from history. When we listen to the patriotic songs, if you listen to patriotic songs, it's from different cultures and countries. Many times it's about the land. Many times it's about how strong the people are. Many times it's, it's about the rulers. But if you look at a American, America the Beautiful, the only one that we sing about, the only phrase we ever sing is about the land. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mag- mountains, majesties above the fruited plain. America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to signing sea. That's not the America that we have anything to do with. That's the America that God shed his grace on. That's the land. That's all that is. Man has nothing to do with that. God has graced us with a great land that is beautiful, resource rich. It's our inheritance and one we are stewards of, not owners. But if you listen to the other the other parts that we don't ever sing. You first stumble onto the pilgrim feet, not 1619 in Jamestown, but the pilgrims whose stern, impassioned stress, a thoroughfare of freedom beat across the wilderness. The pilgrims were not about even progress. They weren't about money. They were about freedom. They also knew that they were flawed human beings. That's why in the second verse, it's God, mend thine every flaw. Confirm thy soul in self-control, thy liberty in law.
see, this is the part of the song that I don't think any of us concentrate on. God, mend thine every flaw. Are we even asking for that? We're asking for our way. We're asking for things to happen the way we feel. But that's what's gotten us here. Confirm thy soul in self-control. And then this... proved in liberating strife may God thy gold refine till all success be nobleness and every gain divine the American dream. No nightmare can come out of this. No beautiful for heroes proved in liberating strife, meaning there is no, there's nothing that is bad. There is no strife that will harm you who more than self their country loved and mercy more than life. No nightmare comes of this. May God thy gold refine till all success be nobleness. How many of us are looking for nobleness or are we just looking for success? We need to decide nightmare or dream. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. You know, the, the pilgrims were English, and so I think it's appropriate today that we we do reflect on maybe some things that you didn't say you were thankful for, you know, uh, there at the, uh, you know, at the dinner table. Uh, for instance, uh, I'm very, very, very grateful for Jeremy Clarkson. Uh, do you watch Top Gear at all? Yeah, so, I watch some of it, yeah. I love it's, Top he's Gear. He's great. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in trouble now because he says... Um, uh, Greta Thunberg is killing the car show. She's killing everything. I, I don't know if you know. She is like, oh my gosh! I think the ki- I think her parents just put her on a boat, and like, no, you can't take an airplane. You got to take a boat, a very long boat ride across <laughs> the ocean just to get her out of the house. Can you imagine living with her? And if I'm not mistaken, they had to fly the captain of the boat. Across the ocean. To her parents. To then take the boat back across the ocean as if the carbon didn't count on the flight to get the captain there. Right. Right. Of course. Mm-hmm. That's the parents. That's the parents' That's fault? the parents. That's the parents going, look, I don't care what you have to do. Fly the whole crew in overseas, whatever. She cannot take a plane. It, she will be home too quickly. <laughs> I do like that idea. I think that's what it is. It's not to protect her image, even uh, though everyone realizes it's false. She's complaining about everything now. Absolutely everything. And Jeremy Clarkson went on and said that uh, he's ruin- she's ruining the car shows because nobody is interested in cars anymore. 
He said, you know, they're taught at school before they say mommy and daddy, that cars are evil, and so it's in their heads. Um, Richard Hammond came on and said, I hate to say it, but I think Jeremy is right. People don't care about cars because how many people are growing up, with, you know, kids are growing up with posters of their cars in their room uh, because they don't care about it because they're bad for the environment. So I want to give thanks for Jeremy Clarkson today because Clarkson uh, made a joke once implying that murdering prostitutes is a common pastime for professional truck drivers. Uh, and he was uh, he they, they tried to get him off the show. Uh, uh, members of parliament tried to get him fired for that, but he, he, he wasn't fired. He also apologized for calling the then prime minister Gordon Brown a one eyed Scottish idiot. Because he's blind in one eye, so he's technically accurate. Um, he is Scottish. Uh, he is, yeah, okay. he is. So yeah, it is accurate. Is, yeah, he is Scottish. And now, and now, this, thanks to that Swedish Thurnberg girl, every child in the Western world is now absolutely terrified that by this time next year they'll have died in a suffocating firestorm. <laughs> so this morning, let's have a little story to cheer them all up again. He says, uh, everyone is, uh, says that climate change is terrible, but what if it's good for mankind? That's the thing about climate change. We keep being told the next shift will be a disaster for mankind, but who knows? You might wake up one morning to find your garden full of unicorns and mermaids and big chests <laughs> full of jewels and money. I mean, even the U.N. says it's going to be a net positive for, what is it, 60 or 70 years mm -hmm. uh, where things will be. Now, that doesn't mean that your local area would be a net positive under their scenario but as for the earth as a whole increased uh, ability to grow and 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 as we all know the mm -hmm. real extreme cold is worse than the real extreme heat extreme cold kills a lot more people right than so, the extreme heat but it, what is i mean mm -hmm. what does greta think about all of this i mean you know because i don't i don't know did you see the did you see the statement that she came out with this week and she was Hang on just a second. We, we have her on the phone? Hello? You have stolen my dreams. Uh, pardon me? You have stolen my dreams. I've stolen your dreams? And my childhood with your empty words. I, I, I didn't... Was and trying yet, to... I'm one of the lucky ones. You're lucky. People are suffering. Uh-huh. We must stop this. How dare you? For for what? How are they suffering again? How I just, dare you! Uh, I, I, if you do not stop driving your automobiles, mm -hmm. I will personally take a knife and remove the thumbs of all the deniers because what? you do not care about human suffering. <laughs> How dare you! Wait a minute! You would be causing human suffering by removing thumbs. How dare you! For more than thirty years, the science has been crystal clear. And if you do not accept it, I will take a rusty railroad spike and rip open your abdomen and pull out your entire large intestine I, and I slice it in its entirety so in a long way. Can I ask? Because you don't care about human lives. How dare you? Right. Is there any truth to the rumor that maybe your parents uh, are sending you on this, this global trip so they could be away from you? Is that Mr. Beck, I will be watching you. You'll be watching I me. will be watching you. You. Okay. And I will, if you, if you only want to cut emissions by 50% and give us a 50% chance of survival, I will break into your home and I will kidnap your whitest child. And I will personally lower their bodies into a vat of hydrochloric acid via cable. 
And I do this because you and your your 0.9 degrees Celsius temperature rise don't care about the lives of children. How dare you? Okay, all right. Thank you very much, uh, Greta, which sounds like she's starting to become a supervillain. Because I'm pretty sure my kids would escape from whatever elaborate scheme that she had planned. Even your whitest child? Even my whitest child might might be able to do that. Mm. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. Everyone's beating up on Louis C.K. for this joke, and it's a it's a it's a typical effort to um, target you know a, a controversial topic or a controversial uh, statement, um, and because it's easy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, look, you know, Louis C.K. made a joke about Auschwitz. You don't normally do that. It's not a mm-hmm. good idea. Although I will say, it's what he built his entire career on was making jokes about really uncomfortable topics. Now, taking out the idea of of his personal troubles for a second, uh, you know, I think Louis C.K. is a brilliant comedian, Mm -hmm. um, and he is a guy who can kind of go into places where no one else goes, and he's had trouble with this even before his personal uh, issues, where he's made jokes about things like child molestation and all sorts of things you should not joke about. However, there is there's a reason you do that, right? And he's doing it to to push those boundaries intentionally. And if you go to one of his shows, you know what you're in for. That this is the point of it, right? He's taking you down roads. He's making you feel way. He's making you feel icky, and then bringing it back around. Like he's a yo-yo. He'll he'll he puts you down to the darkest place that you you're going to be, and then he brings you out of it somehow. Mm-hmm. So he, the joke he got in trouble with was, I mean, he said, I'd rather be uh, in Auschwitz than New York City. <laughs> now, if you've ever if you've ever lived in New York City, there mm-hmm. are times, not very often, but there are times that someone could say Auschwitz or more of this. And you would go, well, no, wait a minute. Let me think about it. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, okay. So first of all. This is a joke not about Auschwitz. Yes, it's not. But about New York City. Correct. Right. The point is he's comparing New York City to something very, very, very bad. However, it's not even really a joke about that. And the reason he's saying it's about New York City, um, because he's saying, you know, it's tough now for him, right? Like, he's gone through his personal sort of storm here, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he makes jokes about that as well, how it's not a good idea maybe to, to... to offer to show certain body parts to people. That's mm-hmm. maybe not... Right. not, not, I not believe necessarily. The term he, he said is, it's not very popular. Right. Which is true. Right. Right. It's really not right. popular. Yeah. So he says, I'd rather be in Auschwitz in New York City. And then he says, I mean now, not when it was open. <laughs> right? Like he's, he's, he's luring you into believing something so and then so pulling great. you back out. And that, I have to tell you, I've been to Auschwitz now. Right. It's still really it's awful. Really creepy you and awful. Really, you really don't want right. to be there, even now. <laughs> no, it's not exactly a. I mean, you did go on vacation to it, and many have. And However, I was quickly a taught spot. by yeah. my wife that's not a vacation, right? Auschwitz. There's no part of vacation where Auschwitz fits. It's the that. last time you were allowed on Travelocity. That's that's basically what that vacation was. It was, was the last time I was allowed to make any vacation plans. <laughs> but I mean, that is he is not mocking out. First of all, he's Jewish, but he's not mock- mocking Auschwitz victims. And we get to this point where we 
all just kind of sit around and search for things that will be offensive to us. Right? Like, I understand if you had a relative who died in Auschwitz, like, there is a, you know, there is a horrible, horrible, uh, you know, memory that maybe it, it drags out. But again, you're going to a Louis C.K. show. We've been doing this since the producers. Uh, like, this, we've been mocking this stuff for a very, very long time. It's the only Holden's way. Heroes. It's the. <laughs> right? Only way right, yeah. you, yeah, Hogan's Heroes. Yeah. It's the only way that humans can actually deal with something as dark as Auschwitz. Right. I mean, I don't know if you remember. Was I still in the my mom's dead joke phase when we teamed up? <laughs> oh yes. Okay. Well, I've seen you do this with Pat many times. Oh yeah, Pat Gray, who uh, you actually did it to him. In an incredibly brutal fashion. Oh, it was brilliant. One particular episode. It was brilliant. Do you remember this? When he had first started in Houston, and he's yes. on the air, and he's he's in, like, you're this big national radio host. Pat he's is starting in, a job. His first right. real, like, if I remember, it was his first, like, talk radio job. Right. And he's, was. you know, in the middle of endearing himself to the audience, Correct. which is an important part of the process. Because people, whenever you start on a new radio station, they all hate you for a while. You used to say time. six to eight weeks. It was always longer than that. Much longer. <laughs> you, you listen to me yeah. for six to eight weeks. You'll hate me. And then you'll go numb inside. Right. And then you'll come out the other side and you'll be like, I get it. It's right. funny. It's okay, funny. I got okay. it. Now I understand. So Pat's in the middle of that, that process and you're already on the station he's going on to. Right. So he's like my, you know, my best friend. He's, he's on, he's a big national talk show host. I'll invite him on the air and hopefully, you know, We'll say that we're friends, and it'll it'll give it'll make that process a little easier. So now, Pat and I worked for years and years and years together as a duo, yeah. and we we were known for just tearing each other apart. Mm-hmm. And I would always bring my mother's death. He would say something, and then I would be like, "Thank you for reminding me that my mother is not here to be with me." Right. And and he would <laughs> he would get the laugh because. Everybody was in on the joke that that's what I always said. Right. And then he would make it worse by piling on. Right. That was the kind of you had like a standing routine. Correct. And it was it worked when the audience knew both of us. Right. But I had been waiting because Pat played that card so expertly every single time Mm -hmm. he could where he would always win. I knew. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> I can win this time. And so he was on KPRC and uh, he said something. And I said, wow, thank you for reminding me about my mother's death. And then he piled on as usual with a joke about suicide or something like that. And I right. was like, I can't. As usual, I said, oh, I can't believe this. I, I mean, that hurts so deeply. Well, the audience didn't know (laughs) that this was a routine that we had done forever. And Pat got it about the third time uh, bite at the apple. And he's like, wait a minute, you have to explain this. And I'm like, explain once that what? That is the most hurtful thing anyone has ever. I don't even know. Wow. I mean, wow, Pat, that was horrible. It was wonderful uh, for me for him it was hell for oh yeah a few weeks oh yeah he was explaining uh, this terrible thing to the audience mm-hmm. for weeks <laughs> uh, however <laughs> the point is that we go to dark places for humor it's because it's, it's the a, only way you can deal with it when you have something for me my humor is really really very dark yes and i've never expressed my darkest side do you think ever on the air I don't not not in a long long time if yeah, you have ever. Yeah. I mean it, it, I mean it's it's very you work with me it is very dark to the point to where people are like 
what the, did he just what what yeah. did he just say and this was a problem as the, the staff started to grow and you would yeah. just continue to do these things when people are on their first day right so <laughs> it was not always <laughs> but it's funny it is funny it's funny to us right but you have to be in on the joke mm-hmm. if you're going to a louis ck it, you know what you're getting yeah. You know what you're getting. You know that he is going to say offensive things and he's going to be funny about them. But and I'm telling you, I think the next generation, the not millennials, what's the generation after the I generation? Are you familiar with this? The I generation, the one that mm-hmm. grew up with the Apple iPhone. OK. OK. They're calling it the I generation. They're calling it the I generation. My kids are part of the I generation. And I've seen their friends, and uh, they are more politically incorrect. I mean, I think there's a massive backlash coming. Yeah. Because they just see it as stupid. Just absolutely stupid. They they grew up on memes. They grew up on mean memes. Yeah. And they see how everybody's like, oh, my gosh. I think there is a backlash of biblical proportions. And that's why Louis C.K. is, I mean, and, um, and uh, what's his name? Um, Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle. Mm-hmm. They are leading the way, and they can get away with it. You know, teenagers can't, uh, but they're getting away with it at this point because it's really smart. That's a smart Auschwitz joke. Yes. Okay? And, it, and it brings you down a road where you, you're like, oh, my God, what is that he is about? horrible. Oh, he actually is. Yeah, like, he not brings now. you down. I mean, not, not then. Not when now. it was open. Yeah, it's great. It's a great joke. It's great because he's turned it on you. Yes. Like, you were the bad were the one problem. thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't thinking that. You were you doing were. it. You were. Oh, my gosh. I'm disgusted by you. And both of those guys are technicians with yes. this stuff. They are tech. Yes. I mean, Chappelle, uh, you know, for all the praise that he got from this last special from the right and all the opposition from the left because he ca- happened to say a couple things that I guess you might consider moderate. I mean, they weren't even like, it's not like he's a hardcore conservative here. He just said a couple of things that you might consider kind of moderate. And because of that, uh, a lot of people on the on the right sort of discovered him beyond, you know, you know the Comedy Central show from back in the days. But the guy's a technician as a comedian. It, 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 comics will tell you that he is, he's the com- comedian that they look up to. Because of 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 just his ability as a as a surgeon with the art, and you know I, I think Louis C.K. is in that is in that realm as well. I mean, and the fact that he's kind of now just doing these small clubs, and the only thing you ever hear about him is when he makes a joke that's offensive, so that everybody can have their clickbait for a few weeks. Because he's now because he had these personal issues where it does not seem that he did anything illegal, but was kind of a, a dirtbag. Uh, that now allows click, 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 click every time he tells a, a joke about sex or about something mm. tawdry or even this where it's just generally offensive. Well, he was always making offensive jokes. It was his entire career. His entire career was doing this with skill. And I think this is just another example of it. Now, he did do it in Tel Aviv, we should point out. So that is a... Maybe a part of the reason why, but again, that's the break. That's a that's and a Tel Aviv is not Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Tel Aviv is New York City. You walk down the streets of, of Tel Aviv, you're either in Silicon Valley or New York City. It's a very, very liberal, progressive part of Israel. Mm. It's a totally. You go to Jerusalem, and it is Jewish and 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 sacred and sure. religious. Tel Aviv is not. 
So it's, him going to Jerusalem and saying that joke would be taken differently <laughs> than in Tel Aviv. I mean, it's I still, mean, look, it's, it's still it's, one that I would say, hey, I might leave out for Israel. Yeah, it's, you know? it's still one in a country basically uh, founded uh, because, because of, of Auschwitz. Holy- yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's risky. It's risky. It's risky. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I was advising him, I'd be like, I don't know. That one might be a little risky there. You save that one for yeah. Iowa, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. I'm so excited about this uh, special that is uh, on the blaze. You can you can find it if you're a fan of Chad Prather. Uh, you've probably heard him talk about it already. Uh, but if if you don't know who Chad Prather is, and I want to know how you get this title, he's an American humorist. <laughs> That's what you're classified as, an American humorist. Uh, and uh, he's well known online for his commentary, just sitting in the cab of his truck uh, with his hat, which he's not wearing his hat today. And you're almost unrecognizable. I am. I'm channeling my inner Glenn Beck is what I'm doing. With is that what it is? Layers and the sweater. Yeah, and the whole yeah, thing. yeah. This yeah. Arctic temperature that you keep in the yeah in the building. Here. Yeah. <laughs> so, Pratt, uh, uh, Chad, you. Um, that's Pratt's a, a good summary. Pratt, of it's a summary. Name, you, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chad, you did uh, a three-part special on uh, Epstein. When you started it, did you think that he killed himself? Did you think it was uh, a cover-up? What did you think going into it? I did. I honestly did not know. I don't know that I had an opinion, but the further I got into it, the more questions that were raised. Like right now, if I was a betting man and had to put $1,000 on the line... I would probably take the bet that he killed himself. But let me raise some questions for you, because when we get into this special, everybody knows the 2008 sex offender who is convicted 13 months of probation. He goes to and he goes to when he does go to jail, they leave the door unlocked because he claims to be claustrophobic. He gets to go to his office 12 hours a day. He pays the West Palm Beach uh Sheriff. Sheriff's office, $128,000, so they could put a TV in the attorney's room. All of these little favors it's that he gets. He makes off-duty police officers wear a suit in order to check in his guests. He pays their salary uh, so that he can do business while he's in jail. We know that guy. He's a creep. What we don't realize is after that, a guy who tries to reinvent himself, who basically gets a ranch in New Mexico because he doesn't have to register as a sex offender there. It's in the middle of the King Ranch, which is not to be confused with the King Ranch in Texas. This is Bruce King. This is the governor of New Mexico, the family which passes down um, political titles and positions like family heirlooms. And he's right in the middle of their property. You can't go. Did he buy their property? Uh to create he got this a little sweetheart deal from them. He buys 10,000 acres, builds a an almost 28,000 square foot home there. He calls it a ranch. It's not a ranch. Uh, the the people around the area thought that the owner of Victoria's Secret owned it because of the rotating models that were coming in and out of these young girls that are coming in and out of the place. But why New Mexico? Beyond being able to get away with not identifying as a sex offender, it's close to a lot of different facilities where there's cryogenics, transhumanism, there is uh, all of the scientific things that are going on. For instance, there was a group that was collecting the sperm of Nobel Prize winners in order to create a new generation of smart people. 
Epstein bought into this idea, and his idea, along with his accomplice, Jelaine Maxwell, who is still very much alive, still very much at large, and has never been questioned by authorities, they concoct the idea of bringing in 20 young girls at a time, impregnating them with Jeffrey Epstein's seed, and signing away all rights to the progeny, the baby, and they're going to raise on this compound and create a whole new generation this of is, Epstein. This is honestly master race kind of stuff. This is big stuff. So this is a guy who is obsessed. This is after he's already been this, in jail. Exactly. This is a whole. This is a guy reinventing himself. This is the guy who's donating millions of dollars to Harvard. This is a guy who's donating to MIT. This is a guy who is a college dropout who is now sitting. Almost as though he is a colleague with these doctors from Harvard in these science programs, and they're treating him like an equal. This is a guy who's welcoming cohorts like Bill Gates and um, um, Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking, Mm -hmm. who think of him as just harebrained, but they love the fact that he's got all this influence, right? So he's concocting this deal. And so you talk about conspiracy theories. This is fact. This is known fact. This guy is wanting to recreate himself. He wanted to have his head and his penis cryogenically frozen so that he could bring him back to life one day. Here was a guy obsessed with immortality. So now back to your original question. Did he commit suicide? Why would a man so obsessed with immortality kill himself? Why would a guy who, even when he was in jail most recently after his arrest six months ago, still be buying commissary favors from fellow inmates? Here's a guy who said that after his first, quote, suicide attempt, He said, I didn't try to commit suicide. My cellmate attacked me. So we can look at all of the different things between the the, the video cameras being off, the lapse in time, the, the, the doctored logs with the prison guards, the people who did not watch him. Why was he left alone in his cell? Is it possible that that he was murdered? Why is a guy who who he already got off once, Glenn? Why doesn't he get off now? And if he's gonna kill himself, why doesn't he just make a phone call? So my question is, okay, let's say he killed himself. Well, there had to be a reason. Had to be a reason why he killed himself. So if he did that, then somebody who's putting so much pressure on him, in essence saying, we're going to make your life a veritable hell if you don't do it to yourself. Like, we'll skin you alive kind of thing. Mm. We'll put you in a pot of boiling oil. You're going to suffer. <laughs> why wouldn't he just make one phone call and say, I have all the news that you want? Now, we saw in, on ABC, Amy Robach, she sits there on the hot mic moment, and she says, I had it all. It was the most prolific case of, of pedophilia we've ever known. This would have been the story of the century. This would have exposed more people than anything we've ever known. Uh, and the key is Epstein was ready to talk. So if he killed himself, why didn't he talk? He could have made one phone call. The Blaze Radio Network. On demand.